But uh, before COVID, um, you were set to speak uh, at Georgia State University. And uh, essentially, I mean, my understanding of it was was asked to sign like a foreign loyalty pledge to Israel. <laughs> and if you didn't, you would be disinvited. So can you for people that know nothing about what happened, can you explain what happened in February, uh, your corresponding lawsuit? And now there's obviously an update with the lawsuit. Yeah. So uh, 28 states or so, and, and maybe more now, have these laws of the books, which is essentially um, for private contractors. So me as an independent contractor going and speaking at Georgia Southern University, um, that would be the same, let's say, as a construction worker. I know that these existed in Texas uh, for hurricane relief funds that you had to sign over a loyalty pledge to Israel in order to get funds and in order to work in the state of Texas. Um, so it didn't matter if I was a substitute teacher or uh, an independent contractor in construction or, in my case, speaking at a university. Ironically, Jordan, this was a conference for media literacy. It had nothing to do with Palestine. It had nothing to do with my pro-Palestine advocacy or my film, Gaza Fights for Freedom. I was simply to discuss the topic of media literacy. So it's just a hilarious kind of chain of events that um, in order to speak there, I was given this contract to say, I pledge that I will not boycott Israel now or at any point in my life in order to get the thousand dollar honorarium that I had, um, that I was going to receive for speaking there. So of course, getting this contract, and I knew that these laws existed in the periphery. I had spoken about them on tour for our film, but to actually receive the contract myself was uh, pretty shocking. <laughs> um, I did not know that that was going to happen. So of course I said that I could not sign this. Uh, I knew that it was a direct violation of my constitutional rights, um, namely my First Amendment right of free speech and the right to participate in political boycotts. This is something that was granted by the Supreme Court back in the 80s on the heels of the civil rights movement. So, you know, I couldn't comply with the request to say that I could never boycott Israel. I've been advocating the boycott of Israel for my entire journalistic career. Um, so, yeah, Jordan, I declined that contract. The entire conference ended up falling apart because in the background, the organizers were arguing amongst themselves and some had taken my side and they said, we don't want to go through with this if you're going to knock Abby off as the keynote speaker because she refuses to sign this pledge. Um, so the entire conference fell apart. There was actually a um, notice on the website saying this is canceled until further notice. And once I told my story, I was contacted by CARE um, about the initiation of a lawsuit against the state of Georgia. These laws have been challenged in, I think, three states, and there have been diff different outcomes for each one. It might go to the Supreme Court. It depends on what the outcome is. But I decided to legally challenge this back in March. We had a big press conference in Georgia with care and my other attorney from this the partnership for civil justice fund marv hating hilliard amazing attorneys i'm so thankful that they're representing me and i think we have a really good case because this is a flagrant violation of the u.s constitution um, and you even have netanyahu and israeli consulate israeli government officials admitting openly that they have in a direct blatant act of foreign interference jordan as we're hearing liberals bemoan about Russia constantly in a direct act of foreign interference. You have Israeli government officials admitting that they have been responsible for pushing these laws 
across the country. So that's where we're at right now. And I can talk about um, what has happened lately, which is why this case is now relevant again, um, which is right before the pandemic hit, because I initiated this lawsuit, Georgia state legislature officials actually brought an Israeli government official to the state legislature and talked to them about crushing my case, which is trying to take the $1,000 honorarium, which would have triggered this contract to any state contractors or independent contractors working in the state, to now upping it to $100,000 to basically make the case moot and make it much more difficult for people to challenge the law. Because if you're making a $100,000 contract, you're much less likely to say, okay, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to forfeit this money because of my, um, you know, because it's a violation of my constitution and, and my political free speech. So it's just outrageous that these laws are on the books. I think Americans would be really, really shocked to learn that these laws exist, especially when we hear so much nonsense about, again, foreign interference that really just comes down to something like Facebook ads when you literally have government officials pushing laws threatening economic consequences if we don't comply to loyalty oaths for their countries. And what I find really interesting is, you know, we know like D.C., APAC, you know, on the national level, Israel has already always had a stranglehold over our national politics. But the fact that this is now spreading to local areas and states, it's like, I don't know, first thing I think about with Georgia isn't like, hardcore love from for Zionism and Israel. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of give insight in why has the kind of federal stranglehold uh, that Israel has through APAC and other, uh, why is it spread to the point where Georgia and these other states would be basically trying to, you know, suppress dissent? Yeah, and for just as a thought experiment, just like think about literally any other country doing this right bringing let's say like a russian or iranian government official or even like a canadian official to your state legislature being like hey you know we're working with uh this government to actually try to push these laws through like you know they've asked us to do this so that this is what we're going to do i mean it's just absolutely surreal and orwellian frankly to to kind of take yourself out of the scenario and really replace israel with any other country and i think it just speaks to this bizarre alliance and allegiance that has been bipartisan, right? And, and even Joe Biden himself said that if Israel didn't exist, the U.S. would have to create one, essentially as the U.S. empire's battering ram and gas station in the country when it's carrying out military operations. So it it's fascinating that this has been able to happen. As to your question about how has this happened on a state-by-state -state level, um, Netanyahu himself said that they have been working locally. I mean, this is an effort to work locally, especially in light of the Trump administration's efforts to suppress pro-Palestine speech on college campuses, because they understand the threat that BDS poses on a local level. This is something that's erupting on college campuses across the country. And this is obviously the biggest threat to Israel on an international level, this international pressure um, that is mounting around the world, really, to hold Israel accountable for its crimes and atrocities against the Palestinian people. So. It erupts on college campuses here. You see a lot of divestment efforts on college campuses here that are successful, frankly, and are causing waves. And that is scaring the Israeli government. And you saw the Trump administration take power, and they had been the biggest friend to Israel that Israel has ever had. You said Netanyahu campaigning on, you know, 
basically his friendship with Trump. Uh, Trump's son, Jared Kushner, profiting personally on his illegal settlement expansion. They even have a house where a room is dedicated to Netanyahu when he comes to visit them. So it's it's pretty crazy stuff. Um, but that's where you saw this kind of forging partnership where they really zeroed in on these college campuses. And that's where, you know, Trump himself um, talked about this attempt. Um, I'm not sure if it was an executive order or not, but he was he he has talked about this a lot. And I'm pretty sure that he passed some sort of legislation that essentially says that if you're going to boycott Israel or initiate some sort of BDS movement, like you, you will forfeit like your potential job prospects and stuff. It's it's a it's defaming college students and pro-Palestine activists um, in a really malicious way. So this has been something that they have been working together. And I think that you've seen these these states pass these anti-BDS resolutions more frequently in the wake of the Trump administration. But um, but I think going state to state is is an obvious um, it's an obvious way to just kind of slip this by because they all frame this, Jordan, in kind of anti-Semitism and hate speech and stuff like that. And I think a lot of these people just don't think twice about it, you know, like in this in the case of the Georgia um, law. I mean, it seemed like they didn't even understand how absurd it was. They were just talking about bringing an Israeli consulate official with them to, you know, change the law. So make my case moot. Um, I think they honestly just don't think twice. And because they framed it in this language of um, hate against Jewish people, frankly, it's really muddied the issue and made people not really aware of what a violation it really is and how it really is a, a notion of free speech. And that's why you see actually Jewish organizations like Trua, an organization of rabbis and also, also J Street, which is a very, very influential lobbying organization on the Hill. Um, they have actually signed amicus briefs filed on behalf of uh, support for my lawsuit because they understand that even if they don't support BDS, right, as a concept, they understand what a direct violation of BDS, anti-BDS laws rather, are on our free speech rights. And I'll also say I'd love to get your thoughts, maybe you have insight into it, but like you said, you were set to speak at a media conference. This wasn't about Israel. You're somebody who's reported extensively in Gaza. Uh, you've done this great documentary. So to me, I don't know, it seems like someone like you with a big following would be on the Israeli government's radar. Um, so I don't know, it just seems odd to me that you're going to speak at a conference about media and all of a sudden this foreign loyalty oath comes out. Did, do you have any insight whether, you know, I mean, hopefully they're not monitoring you at all times, but that Netanyahu's government, his press operation, whatever, uh, was tipped off to the fact that, you know, you were speaking and that's why they reached out. You know, I know that I'm on their radar. They've that's been back since uh, Operation Pillar of Cloud when I was at RT, that they took notice of my coverage and said RT had taken a side in the uh, Gaza massacre that they were employing at the time after they bombed a journalist tower, the Al Sharif journalist tower and blew an RT journalist's leg off. So back then they already had taken notice of my coverage. And then of course it, it got more extreme when we were in the West Bank doing reporting for Empire Files and we tried to get into Gaza and we were told by Israeli's press ministry that I was a propagandist and also an Iranian enemy agent. I, I was surprised to be called an Iranian agent. I'm used to being called a Russian agent or a Venezuelan agent. So that was 
frankly, startling and scary, you know, to be within Israel proper and actually be deemed like an enemy agent of Israel. I don't think I'll be welcomed back in the country. <laughs> um, but as far as this clause, Jordan, that's what's so fascinating about it. I, it. It is triggered simply if anyone wants to work in the state of Georgia and is signing a contract for over a thousand dollars. And I think that the vast majority of people are just forfeiting their constitutional rights to work, right? And without really thinking twice about it. Um, and the only reason that I obviously took notice of it is because I was aware of these laws and you know, read the contract, read the language, and I was totally startled and taken back that this language was included and simply a clause in the overall contract of me signing to speak, right? It wasn't a separate contract that said, here, by the way, here's your loyalty pledge. So I could see how people would completely pass over this without giving it a second thought. And in fact, the majority of people do when they work not only in this state, but like I said, 27 states across the country. Contrary to Rudy Giuliani and the rest of the crackpots, Joe Biden will be president. <laughs> um, he is rumored or reported to be appointing Susan Rice, uh, Michelle Flournoy, uh, not exactly, you know, champions of Palestine, these people. Uh, Biden, kind of your cardboard cutout, um, Chamber of Commerce Democrat, uh, who to me, I mean, it, it will be status quo as far as, you know, platitudes about a two state solution, but uh, basically allowing Israel to do whatever it wants. Uh, you obviously are an expert on foreign policy and, and these figures background. Uh, what should people expect, uh, not just from Biden, but the people he's going to put in his cabinet? Well, one important thing was from In These Times, Sarah Lazar talked about how one third of Biden's Pentagon transition team hails from think tanks and organizations that are essentially financed by the weapons industry. So you have think tanks like the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, which employs several um, people that are part of Biden's EOD agency review team. And those are directly funded by corporations like Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, also received money from like countries like the UAE, which is, you know, bombing the shit out of Yemen and exacerbating that genocide right there. And Trump actually just oversaw a huge weapons shipment to the UAE, uh, exacerbating uh, the death toll in Yemen. Uh, then you have two individuals that are part of the CNAS, the Center for New American Security. This is a think tank that Essentially, you can thank this think tank for the last 10 to 15 years of foreign policy under the Democratic administration of Barack Obama. Um, this was a very, very influential think tank. This is where Michelle Florney um, is connected to. Um, she, you know, she's touted as like, oh, the first woman, right, to run the Pentagon. And that's what you see, I think, with a lot of Biden's transition team so far and a lot of these potential picks. It's like Susan Rice, the first black woman to potentially be in this role. And it's like when it, when you go past these kind of, um, you know, rhetorical platitudes and, and not just rhetorical platitudes. I mean, these are, you know, hugely symbolic, of course, for people of color to take positions of power. But when you go past these you know, when you go past the symbolism, it really is just the same bipartisan um, imperialism and policy of U.S. empire, right? That's subjugating tens of millions of people around the world. And in fact, the people that he's positioning for these uh, for these roles are the worst of the worst, not to use a Bush administration term, but like really, really horrific people here that are just the most hawkish uh, foreign policy grunts in Washington. Um, you know, like, let's take a look at Michelle Flournoy, for example, 
Uh, what's really, really bizarre about her, she's been in, in, you know, she's been in the foreign policy establishment blob for a very long time, going back to May of 1997, when she was serving under President Clinton as an assistant secretary of defense. She drafted something called the Quadrennial Defense Review, which essentially laid the ideological foundation of like endless war. Um, very, very interesting here. This is a precursor to the AUMF. The AUMF is used, of course, from the Bush administration and beyond to root out Al-Qaeda and, you know, engage in any sort of military combat anywhere at any time with no, like, international approval, right? This is just a unilateral um, deployment of U.S. military power. And she coined this thing called a defense strategy on the QDR that essentially said this. It said... <laughs> Quote, when the interests at stake are vital, we should do whatever it takes to defend them, including the unilateral use of military power. Mind you, four years before 9-11, she said vital interests include, quote, preventing the emergence of a hostile regional coalition anywhere on Earth and, quote, ensuring uninhabited access to key markets, energy supplies and strategic resources like really, really crazy. Right. That she's basically saying we have the right and duty as the U.S. empire to just take any <laughs> any resources available on the planet. Um, and this was before 9-11. This is like unbelievable hawkishness. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it goes on and on. She helped craft Obama's endless Afghanistan war strategy. Just every like horrible foreign policy blunder um, under his administration, Libya, Syria, she was right there helping draft these policy. And she's also like on the board of Booz Allen, which is a huge consulting firm. And she's just been going in and out of this revolving door of the contractor circuit for quite some time, just securing millions of dollars in military contracts. Um, but yeah, I mean, the CNAS is a really, really bad think tank. You have Secretary of State Susan Rice, which uh, is being floated as Secretary of State, like I said, the first black woman. And so everyone's touting her as that. But um, but really, like, she is a horrible war hawk. And has, this is going back again toward Clinton. She was in charge of Africa policy for Clinton. She defended brutal dictators uh, across Africa, like the dictator who was overseeing the Rwandan genocide. Um, Paul Kagame. And she also um, infamously, you know, people blame Clinton for bombing that pharmaceutical company in Sudan as a retaliation for the embassy bombing going back to the bin Laden strategy under Bill Clinton. And she actually oversaw that uh, that strike that destroyed a pharmaceutical company that had no connection to the attack. So that was a, one of the infamous war crimes under Clinton that I actually didn't realize that she was responsible for until doing some research about her. But it's like the worst of the worst, Jordan. I mean, she's talking about you go back to her defending Colin Powell, talking about WMDs, saying he clearly, you know, made a clear cut case for Saddam having WMDs, completely adamant about how we should preemptively attack Iraq. Um, she was one of the leading advocates for imperialist intervention in Libya and Syria, and also, again, a staunch defender of uh, Zionism and Israel's war crimes. I mean, she was actually seen in the UN, you know, the international body under Obama as like one of the staunchest defenders of Israel and just constantly defended every single massacre that they were engaging in, in in Palestine. She also like infamously drove that wedge between the US, Russia, Syria, the whole Assad chemical weapons stuff under Obama's tenure. And amazingly enough, she was very, very close to Obama involved in the Terror Tuesdays where he would pick out who to assassinate via drone week to week. So pretty much every single horrible foreign policy 
policy, you know, thing that Obama was doing. She was right there every step of the way giving advice to and she has Joe Biden's ear. They've been friends for a very, very long time. She's also heavily invested in like fossil fuels, the Keystone XL pipeline, Trans Canada. Um, she's worth tens of millions of dollars. So I think that it just, you know, her with Michelle Flournoy and plus all of these think tanks that are involved in his Pentagon transition team just really goes to show you what his foreign policy will be like. And it is so far right. Um, that it's just a slap in the face to the Bernie Sanders coalition. Again, like he ran on this repudiation of Bernie Sanders. So it's just, again, just so offensive to the base that rallied behind him to, you know, oust the fascists from the White House. And so it's just, I think it just is really demoralizing for people who want to move Biden left, who want to, you know, keep pushing that coalition to try to de- employ a more humane, responsible foreign policy. And and again, defunding the Pentagon, which we're spending $2 billion a day to subjugate and oppress tens of millions of people around the world when we're told we can't have Medicare for all. Right. And with Biden, I mean, he has a history. I think Bernie didn't go after him hard enough, frankly. It's not only that he voted for Iraq. He was cheerleading for Iraq when it was already clearly a mess. I mean, years after uh, the war was launched. He was still publicly supporting it. But the thing is, he, uh, you know, as far as I know, he hasn't said anything about his stance on Afghanistan. We're headed 20 years there. Uh, Bernie Rokana uh, did a bipartisan bill. First time the War Powers Act was ever used to end uh, U.S. involvement in Yemen. Trump obviously vetoed it. I don't I haven't heard anything from Biden on whether he would honor uh, that bipartisan uh, the passing of the War Powers Act. Uh, and we know, frankly, I mean, he's about to step into a shit show economically. And what has the U.S. done historically? Uh, if they need a little economic boost, uh, that would be war. So um, w- what are your thoughts on specifically Afghanistan, Yemen, um, uh, and and other hotspots? Um, because to me, he's been kind of vague on uh, what he would do and what wars he would end versus, quote, you know, drawing down troops. Yeah. So Biden has been asked about Afghanistan once in the debates because he, you know, he was VP when Obama oversaw that massive troop surge, which was a horrible, futile effort to, I don't know, win the war and really just caused, you know, a ridiculous amount of deaths and just prolonged the already endless war. Um, And he just kind of stuttered and stammered his way through that answer. He didn't even know what she was talking about at first. He was like, Afghanistan, like, is that what you're talking about? It's like, yeah, dude. Afghanistan. Like, what are you talking about? It was on the heels of the Afghanistan papers that basically just documented 20 years of Pentagon blunders where you had general after general passing off the war to the next administration and just saying the same exact rhetoric, um, you know, that the end was in sight and you've just been hearing the same line. So Biden also was challenged about it, I think, in a 60 Minutes interview recently where he said he would leave thousands of troops on the ground, essentially exactly what Trump has done. (laughs) You know, Trump, after all of this posturing as this anti-war populist candidate, um, at the end of the day, he's only withdrawn 5,000 troops over his entire tenure um, of the last four years. When he got into office, he inherited 8,500 troops from the Obama administration. He immediately doubled that to 14,000, as well as nearly quadrupled drone strikes, doubled civilian casualties, made um, made fatalities of not only Afghan people, but U.S. soldiers at an all-time high. 
uh, for many, many years, I think since the U.S. invasion. And so we saw horrible bloodletting under the Trump administration when he first took office. Um, and of course, the use of the largest non-nuclear bomb ever to be dropped, the Moab, the mother of all bombs, uh, uh, basically a tribute to the mother of all cities, right? Mecca, really offensive to Muslim people. Um, you had um, his generals saying, we're not going to waste our time digging through rubble to count dead bodies to find out how many people actually died from dropping that Moab bomb, which had a blast radius of one mile. He said he took the gloves off for the Pentagon. He essentially gave them carte blanche to do what wanted. And we saw the effects of that. And actually, we saw more of a lack of transparency under Trump than ever before, where we actually don't know how many people are dying from drones and bombings now. But, you know, Joe Biden was directly asked and, and he said thousands of troops. And this is like alongside thousands of special contractors, right? Spe sorry, sorry, special ops soldiers, drone bases, um, civilian contractors, private mercenaries, which we already knew Trump increased 65% when he got into Afghanistan, when he oversaw policy in Afghanistan, sorry, when he got into office. And that actually consists of more than half of the troops on the ground, our private mercenaries who are completely unaccountable, and we don't know if they're staying. So everyone gives Trump credit. Everyone thought, oh my God, the, you know, all this Pentagon shakeup that just happened where he fired Mark Esper and everyone just kind of like bent over backwards to excuse his, his inaction for the past four years and be like, finally, he's going to end the war, right? Well, really, it just meant nothing. Um, we ended up seeing really quickly what that was. And it was him probably trying to consolidate power at the very end of his administration. And it really meant nothing. I mean, Trump has talks a big game. He keeps tweeting out empty platitudes that pretend to be anti-war. And at the end of the day, he has final authority over all troop withdrawals. Trump could have ended the war on day one. He made enough executive orders to b basically do whatever he wanted at the beginning, right? He could have at least said, and you know, bring the troops home. The Pentagon is subservient to him. He did nothing. He did nothing at all. And so I just don't understand why so many people like excused him, right? And actually pretended that Trump was anti-war. And unfortunately, Biden made it really easy because he was fighting Trump from the right a lot of the times. During the debate, he actually fought Trump from the right on um, punishing North Korea and China. You saw him running ads saying Trump was actually a China puppet. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just absolutely bizarre. And uh, I'd love to know what you think, because I got to tell you, all of a sudden, I'm hearing nothing about the Russian boogeyman. Biden won. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just hearing nothing. I mean, we're, we're safe again. Uh, the, the threat has been neutralized. Uh, obviously, I'm joking, but uh, it just, you know, Biden wins, the Democrats won. So Russia is no longer a threat. Yeah. Isn't that isn't that amazing that we don't hear about uh, Russian troll farms and Russian face Facebook ads really swaying voters and, um, you know, infiltrating Black Lives Matter and and different activist groups and stuff like that to try to, like, swing the election. I mean, it was just the most disgusting narrative pushed out there, and it was used for four years to try to usurp like Trump and all it did was help him. You know, it, it really, really helped him because I think a lot of people just didn't understand why the Democrats were doing this and why they were trying to paint Trump as some sort of like a Russian spy. There was never any evidence behind it. There was a million other crimes that he was committing that they could have gotten him on. And so it was just, it was just a disgrace at the end of the day that amounted to nothing except further distrust in like the corporate media establishment, which then just allowed this 
siphoning from the Trump camp into like the fake news narrative, right? That every everything that the corporate media was saying, even if it was true about his administration, was fake news. And so it really bit them in the ass at the end of the day. Um, and it's a it, it's it's curiously absent from the discourse now, right? Just like the voter fraud narrative was curiously absent back in 2016 when Trump won. <laughs> you know, I didn't hear anyone saying it was a rigged election then. So it's just these narratives only are pushed out there when they serve different factions of the establishment. And it's just all partisan nonsense. And I'm sure this isn't the last we're going to hear about Russia. I'm sure Biden, like he said, he wants to punish Putin. I don't know what that means. Trump was already putting a ton of sanctions on Russia during his administration. He was not easy on Russia at all. Um, so I just fear what will happen next because I believe in diplomacy and I believe in working relationships with countries around the world, especially in the time of a global pandemic. So it worries me when I hear rhetoric such as what Biden's talking about. And what I think also is it's kind of dangerous because with Trump, you got the reflexive, you know, fake news to anything critical, whatever. And people were brainwashed by that. And literally, I've gone around the country. I mean, Trump supporters think none of it's true. Not one story is true. But Biden and the Democrats started doing that in a different way, just screaming Russian disinformation when there were negative stories. I mean, the Hunter Biden thing, there was there's legitimately questions whether Joe Biden met with a Burisma executive and then, you know, tried to get a prosecutor fired. Uh, but he just kept screaming Russian disinformation. And then the corporate media did his bidding, regurgitating the same lines. So if more were to come out about Hunter Biden or any role with Joe Biden or anything uh, having to do with corruption. Uh, it seems to me the Democrats line now and Biden's new line is this is a Russian disinformation campaign. Exactly. Joe Biden was so embarrassing because he was asked about this several times on the campaign trail. And one of the times that he was asked about this, I think we talked about this on the podcast, Jordan, he literally said, like, listen, fats. <laughs> um, to an overweight man and said, like, I'm not sedentary, like challenging him to a push up contest. I mean, it was bad crazy. Like the fact that this guy just simply talked about potential corruption with Hunter Biden, which, of course, existed. Why would Hunter Biden be making fifty thousand dollars a month sitting on Burisma? He had no experience. He was it was clearly a quid pro quo <laughs> with the VP at the time, like obvious. Right. And the fact that Joe Biden like wasn't coached. And, and of course he was right. But that just shows you like how off the rails he was like he should have been coached over and over again, saying like, answer this in a really diplomatic way. Like people are going to confront you about this, Joe. Like this is a huge issue. And this is like all the Republicans are making. You know, they tried to do a Pizzagate style, um, you know, Podesta leaks on him right before the election. It was supposed to be their October surprise. It, it failed. Right. Um, but it could still come up. It could still come up. And I think it will come up. And Joe Biden needs to understand how to discuss this, like in a rational way. It needs to respond to this. And the fact that he just shut down any criticism, calling it a Russian disinformation campaign is just like offensive. It's offensive because we all understand that it's not like it exists. The leaks are real. And you need to address this, Biden. Um, so, yeah, they're going to keep using that boogeyman and they're not going to stop. And uh, it's it's a disgrace, Jordan, because it just shows you the Democrats have learned nothing. Right. This is like the party that's just such a sick, sad joke. They continue to just shoot themselves in the foot. They learn nothing from their mistakes and they're just going to pave the way for a second, like, uh, you know, fascist takeover because they can't ever hold themselves accountable. 
And I love your thoughts because obviously Obama, when he got in immediately, we're not looking backwards. We don't want to investigate no charges or, or looking into Bush or his uh, war criminals uh, that pushed Iraq. And now you're hearing Biden before he gets inaugurated yeah. uh, starting to talk about, yeah, I think investigations into Trump would be, you know, divisive and we need to look forward. I mean, listen, I don't think Trump I don't think his Trump is on par with, you know, the Iraq war. Uh, his crimes were most, you know, money laundering and things like that. But, you know, I think he could be prosecuted for child separation and several other uh, terrible things. But it kind of, you know, it's one of those things, like George Carlin said, it's a big club and you ain't in it. It seems like if every incoming president basically pardons or shields the previous president's crimes, then why would the president, you know, obey the law? <laughs> Yeah, Trump's not going to be prosecuted for any, anything. And that's what's so funny. People keep speculating like, oh, Trump's going to be held accountable. His, his family's going to go to jail. It's like, are you crazy? Like, why Why on earth would you think that the Democrats would do this? Biden's entire presidency, presidential campaign has been on restoring the character and soul of America. Completely meaningless platitudes that have no application of policy, uh, nothing directing toward lifting the millions that are suffering in poverty in this country, millions who have lost their health care and jobs during the pandemic. There is absolutely nothing that is speaking to those people. It is just bizarre, like Pete Buttigieg style rhetoric that's saying like, this is about one America, right? We're going to we're going to join together and 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 not be divided anymore. It's like, all right, man, like that's really all you're running on. And, and that really was what he was running on was just that he wasn't Trump. Um, so no, no one's going to be prosecuted from the Trump administration. If they wanted to prosecute Trump on something, there was so many emoluments clause um, things that he was he was violating from the very beginning. Like he shouldn't even have been qualified to run as a presidential contender. Um, so the fact that he was president for four years profiting tremendously off of his name with all of the government officials that he was meeting with around the world and raking in millions of dollars for his family. None of that is going to ever see the light of day in terms of accountability, just like how Nancy Pelosi just got re uh, reelected to run the Democratic leadership. Um, it just reminds me, Jordan, when I really was taken aback back during 2006, I think, when she said impeachment was off the table for George W. Bush. And because Obama had that mantra of looking forward, not backward, that is why we're in the situation that we're in today, because we never held the Bush administration accountable for their war crimes, for killing a million Iraqis in the Middle East, for torture. Um, we are in the situation where the neoliberals are just a hollow shell and the fascists continue to be emboldened. And that's where we're going to go. We're just going to keep seeing this divide widen and widen because there's never any accountability and there's never any introspection on how they can actually build a, a party that represents the working class. And so we're going to keep seeing people sit the elections out. And as much as we hear about people of color really winning this election for Joe Biden, which I'm sure that there were a lot of people of color who mobilized in really great ways to unseat um, the threat from the White House. You see cities like Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Chicago, um, that actually less people in general voted for Biden than they did Hillary Clinton. And you see majority black rural areas across the Bible Belt that voted for Clinton more than they did Biden. So 
you really have to look at the complexities of the uh, electoral arena and understand that there's a lot that we don't understand with these sexy narratives that are being pushed out by the mainstream. And they really need to be taken a look at because things are just going to get worse. And when you have such a huge block that just doesn't engage at all, I fear what's next, Jordan, when the pandemic is just going to keep going on and on with no end in sight.